It's always uh, delightful to be here. I remember speaking at least once here, and I know on two or three occasions on your weekend away, so it's lovely to be with you. Um, we had a gentleman at Cape and Ray where I work who was a very well-known public speaker, and he came and spoke to the students about what not to do when you were speaking in public, and they were all laughing because I do just about every single thing he said not to do, one of which is to ask, can you all hear me, which he pointed out was a rather ridiculous question. I don't know if you heard about the gentleman who said, can you all hear me? And there was a man on the front row who said, well, I can, but I'm willing to change places with somebody who can't. I have about 35 minutes or so, so I wanted to uh, just begin, uh, and you won't know where we're going with this, I would imagine, so please just sit back and enjoy it. All will become clear at the end. About um, a month ago, my wife Barbara and I received a phone call from a really interesting establishment in Preston, near to where we live, and so we went along... And we were there combined probably about an hour, an hour and a quarter. And then we left and went home. Then, about two, three weeks later, we get a call from the same place. We go back. Actually, it was only me who went back. And I was there about 15 minutes, and then I left. And I walked down exactly the same street that I'd walked along 15 minutes earlier. Nothing had changed in that street, but everything had changed in that street. I went through a little passageway in Preston. We call them a ginnel. Do you call them ginnels around here? Probably not. Little passageway, little alleyway. I went to the car park, and a few cars had moved around, but essentially it was the same car park, except now it is a completely different car park. Because every year, round about Christmas through to May, June time, we get a phone call from our optician in Preston. And we go along and we're there for about an hour and we have our eye test, which is always interesting. They've removed the old guy who used to do the eye tests and now we've got this young lady who's extremely attractive. And she sits with her nose literally about three inches from my nose before we even begin the examination and starts having a conversation with me. How are you? And I say, well, things are looking up. You know, she's about here. (laughs) And uh, she checks our eyes and usually our age and stage of life finds that we need new lenses. When you pick up the new lenses, everything is different, although nothing's changed. I don't know if those of you wear spectacles will know what it's like for a few days especially if you have very focals. You're kind of moving around and just checking out where the focus is, etc. Every single one of us this morning has lenses, whether they are spectacles or contact lenses or we have perfect vision. Every one of us have lenses. And philosophers and psychologists and scientists give them different names. They call them words like paradigms. We each have our own paradigm. Maybe a better word would be worldview. Every single person has their own individual set of conceptual lenses that we view the world through. 
And we tend to think that everybody sees the world the same way. That's not true. We all see the world different from the person next to us. Let me read you a definition by James Sire of a worldview. A worldview is a set of assumptions and presuppositions which each of us hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. And so when you enter a situation, you see it differently than anybody else. When you're involved in a conflict, when you're involved in an opportunity or a challenge, and it comes into your world, the way you see it, act, react, is different than everybody else. We all have our own worldview. And we all assume our own worldview is either the way everybody else sees it or is the way everybody else should see it. Usually we become aware that we have a personalized worldview when we meet somebody with one that's very different. I remember a long, long, long time ago um, trying to fly from Denver, Colorado to Manchester. And when we arrived on the airport, it was obvious there was something wrong because there were literally hundreds, at least hundreds of people just all hanging around in lines, queuing up, complaining, wandering about. And most of the check-in desks had cancelled or postponed flashing behind them. And there was a little recording that was playing over and over and over. If you want to talk to somebody, please pick up a red telephone. And so I picked this thing up and there's a lady who was very skilled and very well trained in talking to frustrated people. Uh, and she asked me my name and the flight I was on and I told her this was a Thursday morning and she said, I'm very, very sorry, but the first flight we can get you on is next Tuesday. What? And I put up some token kind of resistance and get nowhere. So I put the phone down and I go to the gentleman we were staying with. And I'm not exaggerating. This gentleman is a, an entrepreneur, American. He's often, when we stay with him, a multimillionaire. Sometimes when we stay with him, he has no money. He kind of wheels and deals and ducks and dives and, and all the rest of it. And he knows I tell this story. So I said to him, Rick, I'm really sorry, but, but we're with you until next Tuesday. No way, he says. You're not here till next Tuesday. Follow me. And we march up to the United Airlines business executive desk. Immediately, I don't want to be there. Because we have got a bog standard you know, super economy, run behind, hope you get a seat, good luck, ticket. <laughs> and so we shouldn't even be there. And there's a very well-dressed gentleman behind the desk, and he looks at me, and Rick says, could I introduce to you, uh, please, the Reverend Rob Whittaker? He says, he is an internationally renowned speaker. <laughs> and it is critical that he gets home by Saturday, at the latest for a very important meeting. This very important meeting was at Nether Kellett Congregational Church, which is a great church. <laughs> but I don't think you'd call it a super important meeting. On a great day, if revival broke out with a following wind, there might be about 10 people there. <laughs> so this guy's now looking at me like I'm Billy Graham, right? <laughs> it's essential that you get him back. He says, sir, I can't do it. Look around the airport. And Rick says, there's always something you can do. I want to die. I want out of it. 
The, the guy says, what can I do? Well, Rick says, he can give you his tickets and you can stamp them so that United will pay for him to go on any other carrier. Certainly, sir. So I take these things out. There's me, there's my wife, Barbara, there's Abby, our daughter. I push them across. The guy looks at them, shakes his head, dear, 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 and, and kind of stamps them and hands them back. Rick then marches down to British Airways, which is closed up. There's nobody there. It's just they've all gone off. So he climbs over the desk, I kiddeth you not, bangs on this door, marked private, and marches in. There's the cabin crew, you know, pilots, uh, etc. They're smoking and drinking coffee, and he does some kind of deal with them. I don't know how he does it. He comes out, he says, well, we've got you on a flight on Saturday, but I'm sure we can do better than that. Marches up to Air Canada. Long story short, they agree to fly us home a very circuitous route. We arrive in Manchester about 90 minutes later than the plane we should originally have been on. Question for you. I don't want you to shout out. I just want you to think. Who was the most spiritual, me or Rick? It has nothing to do with spirituality. It has everything to do with worldview. How you view a problem. How you view a situation. How you respond. How you react. We're all different. A church run by Rick would look different than a church run by Rob. A church full of Ricks trying to meet, reach a community would be very different than a church full of Robs trying to meet a community, reach a community. Worldview is really, really, really important. How we view life, the lens through which we look at reality. Reality doesn't change. But how we react with it changes dramatically depending upon our worldview. So I want to ask you three questions about your worldview. They're probably, with respect, the most important questions we are ever asked. So fasten your seatbelt. Here's the first one. What is your view of God? We're going to talk about that. You do not have the same view of God as the person next to you, I promise you. Oh, I do. I'm an evangelical. I don't know what that's got to do with anything. You don't have the same view of God as the person sitting next to you. And I'll, I'll try and show you that. Secondly, where did your view of God come from? And thirdly, how do you know your view of God is right? So let's work through those one by one. Tell me your view of God. And to help us with that, Let's limit it to one word. You are only allowed one word. And that word must encapsulate what you believe is truest about his nature. That which is the deepest statement about his character. That which sums up everything that you think is important about God. You're only allowed one word. Now, that word can be anything you want. There are no conditions set on the one word that you choose, except there's only one. So, it can be a noun. It can be an adjective. It can be a verb. It can be a name. It can be a pronoun. It can be anything you want, but you're only allowed one word. Now, that is extremely important. Because a wise man once said, tell me your view of God and I can almost predict the course of your religious life. When you tell me in one word 
how you encapsulate that which is deepest about God, that will affect how you pray, without any shadow of doubt. If you're praying to a policeman, it will be a different prayer than if you're praying to somebody who loves you to distraction. If you're praying to somebody who is basically angry with you, you will pray differently than if you're praying to somebody who basically loves you more than anyone else in the universe loves you. Our concept of God is one of the most life-transforming things we can ever have. Tell me your view of God, and I can almost predict the course of your religious life. Everybody has a view of God. Every single person. Now, I love listening on YouTube or, you know, whatever, to these debates between Christians and non-Christians. I love listening to people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and the late Christopher Hitchens. I love listening to them. They would call themselves anti-theists, not just atheists, anti-theists. Those who are against a theistic view of God, but they have a view of God. But I don't believe in God. Well, what God don't you believe in? Describe to me, please, the God that you don't believe in. And, and I discover, when I listen to those guys, that on their definition of God, I'm an atheist. On their definition of God, I'm an anti-theist. I don't believe in the God they don't believe in, much of the time. So our concept of God is very important. And if ever at work or, you know, with your friends or relatives, you, you, you're talking about God, one of the best things to do is say, tell me what you think God's like. Because you'll find that people who don't believe in God, it's not the God of the Bible they're throwing out. It's usually some weird kind of conglomeration they've come up with. So I've waffled a bit. I know that. I waffled for the last probably two minutes to give you time to think about your one word. Now, I'm not going to do this because it would be unfair, but if this was Bible school, I would get you now to turn to the next person and tell them the word that you've chosen. Because we're real sneaky people. And as I get into this, you might morph out of the word, well, yeah, no, I didn't exactly say that, but I meant that. Well, if you didn't say it, you didn't mean it. Your, your, your one word that encapsulates the nature, the character, that which is the, the deepest DNA of God. So here's the second question. Where did your view of God come from? Because that's, a, that's a, also a very important question. At Cape and Ray, as I mentioned a moment ago where I work, Cape and Ray is a, a Bible school. It's also a holiday center. And it's just near Carnforth. It's between Lancaster and Kendall. Really just to the south of the Lake District. And it's this lovely old, the Americans call it a castle. It's not really a castle, but it's, it's a, a nice country house. And we have a massive big lounge with a big log fire. And all the students love to go in there. And there are lots and lots of games piled up on the shelves. And we also have lots of jigsaw puzzles. And what's funny about those jigsaw puzzles, probably maybe may like jigsaw puzzles in your house, half of them have got bits missing. And half of them have got pieces that don't belong to that jigsaw puzzle. And most of them, the box lid's gone missing, so you don't even know the picture that you're trying to make. 
And I, with respect, probably just described your view of God. There'll be bits in there that don't belong there, that you picked up from who knows where. There'll be bits missing that are really important. And maybe even the template, the archetype of what God is supposed to look like has gone missing as well. So where did your view of God come from? I guess our view of God has got jigsaw puzzle pieces from all over the place. So it's got got pieces from our background, how we grew up. I don't know what kind of school you went to, what your, your RE, what your religious education was like. There'll be things that have lodged from that about your view of God. There will certainly be things that your parents told you. And it's fantastic that we've uh, just been remembering Father's Day. And some of us have got great dads. And some of us have not got great dads. And so when we read in the Bible that God is Father, often our own Father and, and characteristics about Him, good and bad, bleed into our view of God. Sermons we've heard, Bible passages we've read, experiences we've had, experience we, experiences we have not had, all are bits of the jigsaw puzzle that forms our view of God. You say, Rob, I don't know what you mean, experiences we have not had. Well, one of the things that's interesting uh, at Cape and Ray Bible School is that we have anywhere up to 190 students from all over the world. And they all come with theological systems. And they all come with very strong opinions. So we might have in a dormitory a young man who grew up, let's say, in, in Washington. And, uh, and, and he believes firmly that God does not do supernatural miracles today. And he believes that passionately and genuinely. And he could quote verses of the Bible to support that. And in the same room as him is a pastor from Africa who regularly prays for sick people and he would believe, whether you agree with him or not, he would believe that God miraculously heals people through his prayers. You have two people who have very different views of God flowing out of their experience or their non-experience of God. So I wonder if you've still got that word in your mind. What is your view of God? And you're not allowed to change it now. Number two, where did it come from? And big, million-dollar question, how do you know it's right? Well, I just feel it's right. Well, so does the person next to you who's got a very different view of God. Well, I've always believed this. Well, probably so has the person next to you. Had their bespoke, long-time-held view of God. No, Rob, hang on a minute, I read the Bible. So, of course, I have the right view of God. I'm not being cynical, or really. So, you think that reading the Bible means that you have the right view of God. There's a problem. We read the Bible through our worldview. We read the Bible through the lenses that we have the lenses that distort, the lenses that filter out, the lenses that mask, the lenses that exaggerate, the lenses that enlarge. That's the problem. If we were to go back 2,000 years, there was a man 
probably most of us here would know about, who I would bet read the Bible more than anybody in this room, studied the Bible more, was more committed to the authority of the Bible. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, spent his life studying what we would call the Old Testament Scriptures. And he came up with a conclusion about the Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures that caused him to conclude that Jesus was a blasphemer. Jesus cannot possibly be the promised Messiah. Why? Because of my reading of the Old Scripture, of the Old Testament Scriptures. He would have said the Scriptures. Why? Because of his lenses. Because of the hymns he sang. Because of the theological studies that he's experienced. Because of the training that he's had. All of those things are lenses. So that when he looks at the Scriptures, he does not see Jesus as possibly being the Messiah. Reading the Scriptures on their own do not guarantee that we have the right view of God. Well, you may say, Rob, whoa, just a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on a minute. You're talking about Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was not a Christian. I am a Christian, you would say to me. Uh, God's Spirit lives inside of me, the one who inspired the Scriptures. I have memorized the Scriptures. I am involved in Christian ministry. Of course I have the right view of God, or really. Let's look at another person in the New Testament called Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who is one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, who on the day of Pentecost is filled with the Holy Spirit, and who becomes one of the leaders of the New Testament church. What happens on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit is poured out upon the disciples. They become Christians. They all begin to praise God in languages they haven't learned. The crowds are listening, and some of them are saying, this is fantastic, and others are saying, these guys are drunk. And Simon Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk, it's not opening time yet. You know, the bars are not open, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, says the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will have visions. On my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. Does Simon Peter say that word perfectly? Absolutely. Does he know the Old Testament? Absolutely. Is he applying it correctly? Yes. Is God's spirit living in him? Yes. Is he a leader of the early church? Yes. Does he believe it? No. Pardon? He don't believe what he's just said. Pardon? He don't believe what he's just said. Being able to quote the Bible word perfectly and even apply it to circumstances does not believe, does not guarantee that I believe it. I may believe it up here, but the longest journey in the universe is from here to here. What has Simon Peter just said? That God's Spirit is now going to be made available to both genders, men and women. That God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all levels of society and that God's Spirit is going to be made available to all the nations. I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, all the nations. Does Simon Peter believe that? Uh Uh-uh, not at all. Question, how many non-Jews does Simon Peter try and reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Answer, zero. It takes a further revelation from God in Acts chapter 10 before Simon Peter is willing to cross the road to talk to somebody who's not Jewish. You remember, he's on the rooftop in Joppa and he has the vision of the blanket coming down and it's full of all kinds of animals that the Old Testament forbids him to eat. And he hears a voice, rise Peter, kill and eat. And he looks at this animal and that animal and this animal and they're all forbidden in the book of Leviticus. And he says to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry you don't know the Bible very well. I've never in my life eaten any of these because they're forbidden in the Old Testament. And God says, newsflash, I'm sending you a software download. And Simon Peter is dragged, kicking and screaming, to the house of a non-Jew called Cornelius. And when he enters and he hears Cornelius' testimony, he says, I now realize something I have conceptually believed for months, I have not believed in my heart. I've believed that God is primarily for the Jews, not for the rest of the world, even though I've been saying it. Inside, I've been running different system software. So how do you know your view of God is right? Because simply reciting accurately Bible verses does not mean that I have the right view of God. I hope your seatbelt is still fastened. So what is the right view of God? What is the answer to the question? I asked this a while ago, and there was a German lady sitting on the front row, and I love, I don't know if anybody here is German, I love German people. They're dead straight. She shouted out, now do you know you're right? Which I thought was fantastic. What, very good. Good question. And I said, well, you can decide in a few minutes. By the way, I've noticed with Germans, when I give an answer, they all, they, I can almost predict the next two words that they'll say. And the next two words they'll say are, yes, but. So, <laughs> probably at the end, some of you are going to call it, yes, but. All right, I'm going to share with you three verses very quickly. I promise you, each of these verses is taken in its context. If I had longer, we could spend half an hour, literally, looking at the context of each of these verses. You can go away and look at them. I promise you I'm not ripping them out of context. Here's the first verse, Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking about the Lord Jesus, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God. Not He is an image. Not He is one of many images. He is the image of the God that nobody's ever seen. What does the word image mean? It's the Greek word icon, E-I-K-O-N. An icon was used in a variety of ways 2,000 years ago. You already this morning looked at an icon. When you were shaving or combing your hair, looking back at you was your icon. When you were putting your makeup on, looking back at you was your icon. Icon is the Greek word for reflection in a mirror. Jesus is the reflection of the God nobody has ever seen. The word icon was also used of an exquisite portrait. You know, an artist, when they paint a portrait, it's different than just a reflection of the person who's sitting. 
A portrait is not just what they look like externally. It captures their character, the nuances, the subtleties of the individual. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. The mirror reflection, the mirror image reflection. The portrait of what God is like. Let me read you another verse. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Again, talking about Jesus. The Son is the radiance, S-O-N, the Son, God the Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. The Greek words exact representation mean exact representation. I don't even have to bother with those. Absolutely, on the money, doesn't differ by one micron, the exact representation of God's being. The word being in Greek is hypostasis. Hypo means under. So if you have a hypodermic syringe, it's a hypodermos, it goes under the dermos, under the skin. Hupa means under. Stasis is standing. And so hypostasis is understanding. It's actually the word for the foundations of a building. So let's plug that uh, meaning into this statement. The sun is the exact representation of the foundational truths of God. I, it doesn't matter how deep I drill into the character, the nature, the essence of God, I will never ever find anything in God's nature, essence, character that is different than Jesus. He's the mirror image of what God is like. He's the classic portrait of God's nature. He's the exact representation of his substrata DNA. And finally, and this was referred to earlier this morning, John chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 18. No one has ever seen God. And then it sounds like it contradicts itself. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known to us. Actually, the original says, but, but God, the one and only, who is in the bosom the chest cavity of the Father has explained him, has fleshed him out for us. It's rather like those Russian dolls, and you take one out and there's another one, and you take one out and there's another, etc. God the Son, who we know as Jesus, came from the bosom, the chest cavity, the heart of the Father, to flesh out what God is like. And so, ladies and gentlemen, according to the Bible, there's only one right answer to the question I asked. The answer is Jesus. And if you got a different answer, with the greatest respect, significantly, profoundly, really importantly, you've got the wrong answer. Rob, don't be mean. I, I'm, I care about you. I love you. I want your prayers to fly. I want the way you look at life to be God's way of looking at life. The only right answer to that question, God's DNA, I actually, without telling you, chose statements from the New Testament to define the question. What is that which is truest about God's DNA? What is his, his, his essential nature? If you have to reduce him to one thing that sums up what he's like, what would your word be? 
If you got an answer different than Jesus, significantly you got a sub-Christian answer. Now, why is that important? Two things, and we're through. Number one, it's important conceptually. I am certain that many of you would have got great answers. You would have probably got answers like love. God is love. Great answer. God is faithful. Fantastic answer. God is sovereign. Wonderful answer. But what the heck do those words mean? That's the whole point. To say God is love is a brilliant answer. 1 John says it twice. God is love. But how do you define love? That's the problem. There are a thousand definitions of love. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Love is never telling somebody they're wrong. Love is blah, 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 blah. And all of those are terrible definitions of love. That's the problem. 1 John also says, here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. I have to define love from what I see in Jesus. How does Jesus display love? What's Jesus' kind of love like? Or how about this one? God is sovereign. Great answer. But what does sovereign mean? You know, Queen Elizabeth II, God bless her, is the sovereign of, of England, of the United Kingdom, actually. She has no authority which is measurable most of the time at all. Do we, is that what we mean by God is sovereign? That he just, uh, you know, authorizes, stamps the decisions that we've made? Or you have the view of sovereign in the Middle East where you have some guy who's sitting on millions and trillions of dollars of oil and can vaporize anybody who stands against him. Is that, is that what we mean when we say God is sovereign? That he vaporizes those who stand against him? Resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. Really? How about Jesus on his knees washing his disciples' feet? How about Jesus born and laid in an animal's feeding trough? That's God's kind of sovereignty. We have to define Bible words through the lens of Jesus. Or we finish up as people with Bibles and quoting verses, but running system software that is the opposite of what God's like. Honest. Some of the most obnoxious people I have ever met have been evangelical Christians with big Bibles who are a pain in the neck. And I would never travel vast distances to spend any time with them because they're not like Jesus. Wow, something's wrong. It's really important conceptually that we truly believe that God is like Jesus. And finally, it is profoundly important personally. Let me read you a statement by Kenneth Bailey. This means I'm going to go over two minutes. I apologize, but it's a really important statement. All right? And when I first heard it, it, was, it made no sense to me. Here's what he says. For many of us, the teaching, example, relational style, choices, priorities of Jesus have as much place in our practical and devotional lives as they do in the Apostles' Creed. And I read that and thought, what? And so I looked at it again. Question, how much priority does the teaching, the example, 
the relational style, the choices, the priorities of Jesus have in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, of course, not from the Bible. It's just a summation of Christian doctrine. And it's great. When I used to go to the Anglican Church, we said this every Sunday. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And I believe in his only begotten Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. How much emphasis was placed there on the life, the relational style, the teaching, the choices, the example of Jesus? Answer, one flipping comma. And I believe in his only begotten Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that's Christmas, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and then buried, that's Easter. And so in that statement, no priority at all is placed on the life, the teaching, the parables, the choices, the example of Jesus. And Kenneth Bailey said, for most Christians, the teaching, example, relational style, choices, priorities of Jesus have as much place in our practical and devotional lives as they do in the Apostles' Creed. So I would urge you in your personal reading of Scripture and in your living of life 24-7 to kind of wear that little bracelet that used to be popular. What would Jesus do in this situation. I'm going to pray and then I think we're going to move into communion. Father, thank you in my own life how you've been reminding me and challenging me about the need for the Lord Jesus to be central, not just in theory, but actually truly. Father, Whenever I have my eyes tested, I'm amazed how they've changed in just a year without me realizing. And so often I need new lenses, so I'm looking at things clearly. And I pray for those of us who inadvertently may have drifted away from the centrality of Christ, that you'd tweak our spiritual vision and help us to have him as the focus and center again. And we ask these things in his name.